I had a curt letter from Lord Stonehouse in Newcastle, ordering me to go home. Colonel Greaves had recovered and was returning to the regiment. I rode alone from Essex to London. The countryside was bare, many fields overgrown with weeds, while all the troop movements had left the roads looking as though a giant plough had been taken to them. In a world upside down, even the seasons had not escaped. Spring was not merely late. It looked as if it would never appear. Most of the trees had been chopped down for firewood during the royalist blockade of Newcastle that had stopped coal ships coming to London. All I could see was Scogman's raw, bleeding back and the sullen, resentful faces of my men. No, no longer my men. I had lost them, lost myself. By the time I arrived in London, those memories had left me in total darkness. My wife Anne knew the mood, the strange blackness that came over me, and saw it in my face when I half fell from my horse into her arms. Her embrace was more soothing than any physic, blotting out the memory of that bleeding back. For days I slept or wandered in the garden of our house in Drury Lane, where Anne's green fingers had planted an apple tree. The one in Half Moon Court, where we had played as children, then snatched our first kisses, had been chopped down in the last bitter winter of the war. I felt the first tight swelling of the buds on the young tree, still black, waiting for the warmth of the sun. There would be spring in this little garden. Perhaps the tree would bear its first fruit. Cromwell lived in the same lane, and I screwed up my courage to go and see him, but was told he was ill, with an abscess in the head which would not clear. The news made me even more disconsolate. "'You are not yourself, sir,' said Jane, the housekeeper. I tried to laugh it off. "'Exactly, Jane. I'm not myself. I must find myself. Where am I? Was I with the sullen, resentful men?' Or was I, could I ever be, with people like Chaloner? Where am I? I said to my son Luke, who, when I'd arrived, had stared in wonder at this strange man tumbling from a horse into his mother's arms. Am I under the chair, Luke? No. The table? Luke ran to Jane, covering his face in her skirts. Come, sir, she laughed. Tom is your father. It grieved me that I'd spent half my life finding out who my father was, and now Luke did not know his. He had dark curls, in which I fancied there was a trace of red and the stonehouse nose. What in my plebeian days I called hooked, but Lord Stonehouse called aquiline. Although Luke's grandfather doted on him, he treated the boy very sternly. Perhaps because of that, Luke often ran to him, as he did to the ostler Adams, who would level a bitten fingernail at him and order him to keep clear of his horses, or he would not answer for the consequences. Luke would run away yelling, then creep quietly back for another leveled nail, before at last Adams would snatch him up screaming and plonk him in the saddle. I felt a stab of petty resentment he would not play these games with me, and went upstairs to the nursery to find my daughter, Elizabeth.
she was a few months old. Anne had been bitterly disappointed she was not a boy. It was a rare week which did not see at least one child buried in our old church of St. Mark's, and Anne wanted as many male heirs as possible to reinforce Lord Stonehouse's promise I should inherit. Lord Stonehouse's first son, Richard, had gone over to the Royalists, and when Lord Stonehouse had declared I would inherit, I'd fondly imagined it was because of my own merit. In part, perhaps it was, but it was also because he had been discovered helping Richard escape to France. Declaring me as his heir not only saved Lord Stonehouse's skin, it enabled him to back both horses. Whoever ruled, it was the estate that mattered, keeping and expanding the magnificent...